1: Hey there, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Pennsylvania Woodsman Podcast. I'm your host, Mitchell Shirk, and I got a great episode coming to you guys this week. Um, This is episode number 98, and the only reason that I know that is because I went back and counted them all because I knew I was getting really, really close to my 100th episode, which i just recorded this past weekend that was a really fun episode it's very very special near and dear to me and i'm really anxious to bring that to you guys uh in in just two more weeks i can't believe you know time is flying the way that it is but that was really really fun but uh yeah as far as this week's episode uh, i'm thinking food plots right now food plots are on my mind deer are on my mind just because, I mean, why wouldn't they? We're, we're into the second half of July. Time is just flying by. It's going, <laughs> I'm telling you, I swear the years get uh, shorter all the time. I don't know how that's possible, but that's just the way it feels. But when I get to the end of July, into August, I'm thinking about fall food plots. And I wanted to have our guest on this week to talk about his fall food plot mixes, uh, fall food plot mix and how he handles it and give you guys a little bit more information. And it's one of uh, one of our partners. It's Al Temechko from Vitalized Seed. And I've had Al on the show before. And if you've listened to that episode with Al, if you've listened to any other podcast that Al has been a guest on, It doesn't take long to know that Al loves soil biology. He loves the mystery mystery behind it and learning, 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 learning. And I've teased him already. I I called Al Mr. Tinker because he's always tinkering with all kinds of things, seed blend related, fertility related, anything soil biology. He wants to learn more about it because his goal is to make the best food plot seeds Food best food plot blends that we possibly can, and uh, you know he's got a greater interest too outside of food plots. He's got an interest in agriculture and just soil health in general, and that's really what's important to me. I mean, like I said, as many of you guys know, if you've listened to this, I'm an agronomist. I work with a lot of row crops, and I do a lot of cover crop recommendations. I do a lot of Uh, no-till, cover crop, planting green soil health practices with a lot of my growers. And it's great to have like-minded individuals to bounce that kind of information off, even though we kind of come from a little bit different angles in in what we do for a living. You know, Al is very much into the food plot world, but he's very interested in soil health and conservation, which is a huge part of what I do in the agronomy world. So it's great to bounce ideas off of him. You know, Al, Al you know, kind of laughs at me a little bit, but I've learned a lot from Al talking with him, getting getting myself to think outside of the box from a soil health perspective. So if you guys have listened to any episodes with Al, you know he's very passionate. And, uh, you know, the episode that I did with him a few months ago, I, uh, I, I think I named it something along the lines of soil nerdology or something like that. And we kind of geek out over that stuff. But I give Al a little bit of a hard time sometimes because I said, you don't showcase your seed blend well enough sometimes. I, I'm like, dude, what you've got going on here um, and how this works for wildlife is, is something that can't be overlooked, and I think it's a l- really easy for folks, you know, the average Joe food plotter, to listen to an episode with Al and myself, and we could go off about uh, mycorrhizal fungi and carbon to nitrogen ratios and nutrient cycling, and you guys could go well, these guys have me lost and I'm tired of I'm tired of this nerd talking. Th- this episode's different from that. We really break down and and talk about the vitalized seed system, the two-pass system, nitro boost the carbon load. We talk specifically this week about carbon load, what it is, why Al chooses the seed species that are in there and how he blends them appropriately that way you're getting season-long forage maximum tonnage from each of them, and how each of those plants benefit throughout the entire season. And one thing I think you guys got to keep in mind, you know, when you see multi-species mix, there's a lot of bad discussion out there in media for food plots that if if a food plot, uh, if a food plot blend has this specific species in it, then that's junk and it doesn't belong. And that's not always true. It might not it might be a plant that isn't really, really high on the on the whitetails preference, or maybe it's something that doesn't peak as far as its attractiveness during the heart of your, your hunting season. But think about it like this. When you have diversity in your mix, again I already established that we have maximum tonnage, season long tonnage, attractiveness from the beginning of the season to the end of the season. But there's components of that blend that are feeding soil health that are going to make it better for the long run. Don't just think within that three-month window of deer season. It makes the food plot system that much better. It makes it easier for weed management for next year's food plot. It builds your fertility and builds your uh, soil coverage going into next spring. There's, there's so much more to it, and that's why we get off on our tangents that we do about soil health and stuff, because we understand that. But this week, Al breaks down the species, their attractiveness, and how he is seeing, when you mix certain species together, how it just becomes like a smorgasbord of attractiveness. And... Uh, i'm going to let it at that it's a great episode without it's like i said breaks down carbon load why you would go to just planting this seed blend a multi-species blend over any other seed blend and i truly believe it's gonna for those of you who have never experienced something like this a system it's going to make your lives simpler but it's also just going to blow your mind and what it can do in your food plots in your soil So, without further ado, let's get to this episode. Real quick, a word from our partners, and that's going to be Radix hunting. Guys, trail camera season, I, I mean, usually summertime, July is when I'm getting hot and heavy for trail cameras. I'm behind like always, but if you are like me and you need to gear up, you need to get a couple more cameras out there, check out Radix's Gen Series conventional cameras. If you're looking to just get something, you pull cards, guys, Crystal, clear image quality, and prices that are hard to beat. M-Core cell cameras, again, I really like their cell cameras because uh, they are very competitive as far as where they stand in their competition of prices. And again, just awesome, awesome images. I I can't stress it enough. Um, Also check out for Radix Hunting, Monarch hunting blinds. They've got soft-sided and hard-sided hunting blinds. Something that, to me, is extremely important for food plot hunting and i've talked about that in other episodes that you know awesome awesome access with a blind that you can get in and out of is important it's quiet it's airtight that's important and they have you covered and you know you might not be a pennsylvania resident maybe you're somebody hunting in a surrounding state where you're a state that allows baiting you know ohio and maryland are states that come to my mind check out their vertus six Seat Feeder. Uh, they have a feeder that has a 600 pound capacity throws a 20 to 30 foot throw and it's got a skid design that's really really simple for mobility so check out radix hunting and all the products they have to offer and with that guys let's get to this episode with Al so uh, joining me again for uh for another episode here I have my friend Al Al how you been Good buddy, how you doing? Thanks for having me on. I'm doing well. Um, it's uh, we're kind of coasting. We were talking before when we uh, when we got uh, before we got started here that you know the, the the rain and the forecast and the weather we've had has just been crazy. I've seen some crazy stuff in fields, but now it's like all that stress that we had during the month of May is starting to alleviate. And I know you've been making some posts about food plots and talking about how stuff has just jumped in your food plots. Yeah.
0: Yeah, well, I think it really, you know, I, I like to tell people all the time, you know, water is nature's solvent, right? And without water going into our soils and making nutrients available and allowing those plants to, to move and, and absorb those nutrients, you know, that's that's what's so critical about the water. I mean, even more critical when you have healthy soil, that when that water does come, those plants have that soil fertility or, or you know, nutrients to take up. And man, it, you can really tell when you have a good thing going because... Not only does rain make everything jump, but boy, like you and I were talking before, when you have a good system going you get that rain, I mean, you can almost literally watch it grow. I mean, it's it's just truly amazing to see in, in such a short amount of time how fast it can grow. Um, so we were real thankful to get the rain, as I know you were.
1: Yeah, water alleviates a lot of problems in fields, too, and a good example of that. There's a grower I've been working with— um, he took over he took over the farm from his dad and uh there there were things that were neglected in some of the fields and he's he's really doing a good job of trying to do it but some of the places some of the fields he has were they're going to take some years to to bring fertility to where I want them to, to bring stuff and even something as simple as the pH so you know 2 years ago it's 2021 i mean we had one of the best growing years in my area that we've had i mean i had guys have farm average records for corn and soybeans which was fantastic and uh, this particular grower was was no exception he had some farm average records and uh you know really had some great corn and soybeans then you you go back into last year right and last year we started out okay then we started to get dry in that month of june and it stayed pretty darn dry we we didn't get some rains until august and yield suffered but one of the things i was noticing in this cornfield is I saw a lot of really, really poor emergence. I saw a lot of uneven corn, uh, uh, magnesium deficiency. I saw nitrogen deficiency and very, very... And it wasn't like it was... It was like uh, a five-acre section of this field and then the two-acre section was bad. It was like... You know, I always call it AT&T corn, raising the bar. It's up and down all over the place, and there's no consistent pattern with it. And I remember I took soil samples and plant samples and, and got the deficiencies back. But the soil samples, it was one of those fields where the pH was so low, and it was, a, it was like a 5.5 in the worst areas, which is bad.
0: Mm-hmm. And then he
1: said to me, he said, I pulled off 50-plus bushel-to-the-acre bushel soybeans last year in that field. He said, why am I seeing this major problem now? We didn't see these problems last year. Answer daily double. We had so much rain, it corrected it in a sense that it, it, it didn't fix the problem, but it it suppressed what they expected. And I said, can you imagine what it would have been if we had our balance appropriate?
0: Right. Right. Amazing. Truly amazing.
1: But yeah, so um, we're, uh, we're always quick to talk about food plots and stuff like that. But I wanted to pick your brain. So you you get you love talking about soil you love talking about food plots you're like me but I'm curious outside of the food plot stuff anything that has you excited as far as fall this year any any projects on the on your your properties that you're doing you know whether it was habitat management or maybe deer specific or anything that's got you really excited that you're working on outside the food plots
0: well I mean yeah there's always a million and one projects um running cameras for bucks you know Got a few few deer for sure that are um you know four five, six plus years old um that's always always on my mind um a big project was passing uh equip program so the farm's registered as a as a tree farm so you know most of it's mature timber so our big focus is removing invasive species um, working on oak regeneration managing the forest types for that so um, that was a huge project over the last couple of years was spraying invasives. Um, I actually passed all those sections for the second year. So they come the first year and they say, oh, you killed 80%. Then you have to go back and, and retreat. And actually I had done that. So it's like a couple year process. Um, so that was a huge, from a habitat perspective, um, win. And then that led into starting on a, Pretty large, uh, timber, timber stand improvement area. So I think it was either, either 11 or 17 acres, um, that we just started in on. So me and the forester went through, we marked trees, and then, uh, me and a buddy started this past winter. And I mean, we were girdling, we were felling, um, pretty much those two. Well, there'll be a couple that'll get just like basil treated, but the primary <clears throat> modes of action were, uh, a straight felling of the tree and or uh, a girdle of the trees and that was a huge like beach some there's some beech in there there's some uh, non-marketable maple and we're really trying to there's some oak that needed to go that were just junk and we wanted to open it up for for kind of a good timber value in, in larger acorn producing oaks so that was really exciting and then to top it all off which kind of leads into food plots a little bit but we did a, a small timber sale. So I had a, a ridge on the farm that's about six acres, give or take, and um, it was mostly red pine. So not a real big market in our area. And uh, for years I had foresters, like it was so unimportant to the foresters that they didn't even put it in my NRCS contracts. They were just like, yeah, just, if you can cut it, cut it. But if not, we're not even gonna, we're gonna pretend it doesn't exist. So basically a biological desert. I mean, you have some thermal cover there, but they were to the point where they're like 40 years old. So they're really tall. Um, the deer have really stopped going through that area. And the nice thing is uh, it's like a totally flat ridge top surrounded by oaks. So the opportunity for oak regen was really, really good there. Uh, the problem was trying to get somebody who would cut it. So after multiple years of being my persistent self, I finally found somebody... Um, and they were able to come in and, and actually offered us, you know, a decent little bit of money. So we got some money in our pocket and, um, they are in there, uh, removing a lot of that pine and, uh, they're actually going to doze out about a two to three acre flat spot. Um, that's going to be a food plot. And then behind that is going to be like three and a half, the remaining three and a half acres of just thicket clear cut surrounded by oaks. Um, so yeah, on a north, a north wind, it's going to be a pretty bulletproof setup uh, to let those deer feel comfortable, come out into that field, and there might just be a, a box blind there that you can sneak into on a north wind that'll be pretty perfect for uh, for hunting. So I'm really excited about that and what's going to look like in a couple of years.
1: That is really exciting. I'm curious. A lot of people that I've run into that have properties that would be eligible for a lot of um NRCS, equip government-type programs, a lot of people shy away from that. And I, I'm not 100% sure why. I think it has to do with probably lack of knowledge of programs or just the belief that the 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 program won't completely meet all their goals and objectives, or, or maybe it'll almost be like it'll hinder their, their, their full capability. So I'm curious, like, have you experienced that, like the the cut? It you, you're talking about girdling, killing trees, and opening the canopy up. I mean, what exactly is the the specific goal? Is it to maintain early succession? Is it to stimulate specific tree species? Is it a combination of those things? And does it completely meet your objectives? Or were there things that you had to compromise a little bit based on that program? Yeah,
0: so for me, yeah, I, I think it. Totally meets my objectives and puts money in my pocket and I'm willing to do the work, right? I mean, I think one of the things that a lot of landowners who maybe aren't as obsessed with habitat management um, would shy away because you do need to know your tree species, right? And and you do need to be willing to take the time and say, whoa, I'm not going to, you know, I'm going to put the herbicide down here. I'm not going to spray this tree because I can't totally identify it, you know, things of that nature. Um, and maybe that gets some people um, to shy away. I mean, treating 17 acres of tree of heaven on the side of a hill is a lot of work. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not for the brain of heart. Like you are in brambles, you're getting cut up. It's July because it's the best time to treat them is the summer. You know, I, I mean, it's, it is a lot of work. So maybe that's why you have to use chemicals, right? So you have to use, uh, most often for, for tree of heaven, uh, or Atlantis is, um, with diesel fuel. So you use diesel fuel as your, as your, um, basically you're you're uh, permeating oil, right? Yep. And then uh, the tricliferate kind of slowly sneaks in through the, or seeps in, excuse me, permeates through the bark and gets down in. And it kind of sneakily kills that tree uh, because they're just so explosive if they feel attacked. So um, there's a lot of little like nuanced details to treating um, invasive species that maybe that's something that shies away from people. As far as the, the the TSI and the goal there, I for me it's it's maximized my opportunity to one open up the canopy while still focusing on timber value in the short and in the long term, right? And coming up with a plan that says not only am I gonna cut timber and say three to five years Well, I maximize this oak let's say then also having a plan with a forester where like yeah those two oaks there we're not going to cut that on the first go around those are going to be in ten years right like getting this rotational program but you also have all these open pockets of bedding and stuff in between in these bottoms Um, and so for me it's like a win 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 type of situation I will say the caveat there is um, I'm, I'm fortunate that, you know, we hit, we're managing now just under 400 acres for whitetail. So I have enough room. Whereas like, I guess maybe if, if I didn't have as much room to play with, maybe I'd want to see that, you know, a harder cut faster. So I'd want to do an equip program maybe after I sold some timber, but you still can, can do that. Right. So there is some red tape, but like I've loved everyone I've worked with the NRCS the state foresters have been phenomenal. Um, I, I just think it's been, at least for Ohio in my area, it has been a absolute home run situation for me. And uh I've been very, very happy, happy with it. So I don't really know. I couldn't think of a negative other than I guess if you wanted things to move faster. Um but I guess you could sell timber first, get it, get it how you want it, maybe cut out some deer bedding areas and then go in and enroll and say, hey, I had already done this or whatever, didn't know about these programs, you know. however you learned about it or, or read it, and then try to enroll the program and say, what can I do here to manage this property this way?
1: Yeah, I really like that you have that. And like I said, I think it's an underutilized tool because it's, it's money in your, in your pocket in a lot of sense, or at least alleviates the cost of the things that we want to do. I, I think a lot of it is that that desire to have instant gratification i think people like to micromanage hunting parcels which there's nothing wrong with but i i also feel like with habitat and hunting strategy you can have a little bit more wiggle room than many believe um people talk about narrowing down a specific buck bed location and cutting it in this design and it has to be this way and i'm not discrediting that whatsoever but i just find when you can make a parcel of oasis and low pressure and and hunted accordingly to um a, a government program it's definitely doable are there things you might have to tweak in your hunting strategy absolutely but i just think it's a it's an underutilized thing and i'm really glad to hear that you you talk about that and speaking of um you know that process taking a while to see that gratification you know it's a it's a it's a, it's a succession is not something that happens overnight it, it's a timely thing and with that is uh is our food plots and that's what we want to talk about today um i'm thinking when you talked about dozing out a new food plot you're starting from scratch man you's probably got some low ph's you probably got a whole bunch of stuff and you're gonna you're gonna work on that uh that soil and that system so a, a brand new food plot um virgin ground is there anything you're gonna you, you're looking forward to tinkering with especially when it comes to the food plots anything you you're, you're planning on i want to test this to see in a in a, a virgin new soil type thing that i, I you know, want to learn about
0: well in that particular situation um it's 30 to 40 30 to 50 year old red pine so the soil is going to be about four. Mm. I mean, the pH of that soil is going to be low. I mean, it's going to be very low. So um, I will most likely um, obviously pull a soil test, right? Absolutely.
1: Um, the foundation, man.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a no brainer. Even though I know it's going to be low, like I'm still going to pull the soil test. I want to see where it's at. I will – very likely, just based on kind of knowing my, my general base saturations, I will be putting a high cow lime. I could be wrong. Maybe, maybe it'll be dull Mike, but I have a suspicion it'll be a high cow lime and, and quite a bit of it, um, that first year. And most likely, um, because it is that first year, um, and there's going to be some roots there, you know, and things like that, that I will be using my buddies. Uh, my buddy is just like a seven foot killer. It's mm-hmm. nice. And, uh, we'll probably till that lime in fit that ground and then go over it with the no-till and get pretty much a, a perfect, you know, seed depth, root structure, et cetera. I will probably, because you know me, I always am tinkering. Um, I will definitely be using um, fungal inoculants on the seed in that. I want to make sure, not that it's not there. I'm sure there's, with the trees being there for as long as i I'm, I'm sure that there's a good mycorrhizal fungi network there but I certainly don't think it's going to hurt to help inoculate them and get some additional fungal situations going. It's so like I use the Taneo products, they work well for me. Um, I wanna make, just jumpstart that biological system because you are gonna have the roots in there and, and years of duff that got packed in with the dozer, et cetera, and I wanna get some of that going alongside some roots in the ground. So that'll probably be my approach. Um, I will likely be foliar feeding that the first year or two. Uh, pretty regularly um, I'm assuming that the growth just with that low of a pH um, you know with having the dozer head going back and forth I mean on the top of a ridge could there be some potential compaction issues with relatively heavy soils in that part of the state um, I don't want to compaction is probably overused there might be some tightness issues sure. um, and, and so so all of that being said I think I'm gonna you know spoon feed those crops um you know the first year or two to make sure that i'm getting really healthy root systems really healthy crops keep taking soil samples and um just the way i've done it in the past and it'll be the kind of the same idea uh, i do think that it will be a large enough field that i won't have to necessarily worry about um, a ton of the biomass walking off you know between two or three acres in, in field so i'm happy with that whereas if it was only a, half, a quarter acre I, i'd be a little bit more concerned um but yeah, I mean that—that's where I plan to be, buddy. And because I am tilling, um, that's where one of those times where I, I'm going to look and see if my phosphorus is really, really low. You know, maybe I decide to hey, I'm going to if I'm going to do this one time, let's put some phosphorus and potassium right in the root zone um, because <laughs> I normally, I mean, I normally don't recommend that for guys who are no tilling because phosphorus is so immobile. Yeah, I'm like if you're, you're going to use it in in a food plot situation try to use a foliar you know and there's kind of mixed results on how well phosphorus is uptaken by foliar you can find like really different ends of the spectrum on that that i've seen at least i'd like to hear your your take on that but i feel like it's better than throwing it because we know the granular isn't going to move we know it's like just throwing it on top is like oh i mean that's really a wish and a prayer so um for me if i notice that the phosphorus is super super low um, you know, that might be, be an option. And, and I'm sure I'll think of some other things. Maybe there's I don't know, chicken litter or something like that. But most likely, I'll try to keep it pretty simple. I'll probably stick with lime. I'll probably stick with fungal inoculants on the seed, rhizobacteria, um, and then use, you know, humic-based foliar applications over the year to just jumpstart that root system.
1: All right, folks, it's that time of year for fall food plot planning. And this year, I'm proud to be working with Vitalize Seed. I work with them because they're great people and they're extremely passionate about wildlife and soil health. My fall food plots will be planted in Vitalize's Carbon Load, a 16-way diverse mix that is highly attractive to whitetails and has countless benefits to soil and soil health. If you've ever been overwhelmed by the hundreds of different seed blends on the market, check out Vitalize's 1-2 planting system. It's designed how nature intended, to make biology work for you. Now each plant species in the blend has the proper ratio of seed to grow synergistically, not allowing any to outcompete another. This provides season-long forage for wildlife as well as benefiting the soil biome. There's no need for complex crop rotations with monocultures that are susceptible to drought and overbrowsing. Whether you plant with fancy no-till equipment or a bag spreader in a lawnmower, Vitalize can work in any food plot. For more information about Vitalize and soil health practices, visit VitalizeSeed.com and be sure to follow them on Instagram and Facebook. Radix Hunting was founded on premium grade trail cameras and continues striving to produce the best cellular and conventional trail cameras on the market today. The Gen 600 is a second generation camera from the Gen Series line. With premium video and audio recording capabilities, this product has become well respected as the HD video trail camera. In addition to the Gen Series cameras, their M-Core cellular camera has all the features of a quality cell camera at an affordable price. Along with their cameras, they offer stick and pick trail camera accessories to allow you to set your cameras just right. You can find it all at RadixHunting.com and be sure to follow Radix Hunting on Instagram and Facebook. Want to check out Radix cameras in person? Stop in at Little Mountain Outfitters in Richland, Pennsylvania, and have a peek. Now, back to the show. Yeah, very, very important points you're bringing up here in my mind, because again, we're, we're you and I are very, very pro-no-till, pro-soil health, keep soil covered, keep living plants growing. But one thing I learned, uh, I had a, a dairy farm, uh, a new dairy farm startup about uh, five, six years ago, and the farm that they bought was... Um, I'm not going to say it was farmed out, but it was just really, really rough ground, had some topography to it, and uh, you know, the, this, this farm was doing a lot of double cropping, so they were taking a small grange, uh, planting it in the fall, they let that come into about May, and then they're taking that off for forage, and then they're coming in, and they're no-tilling corn. And uh, the first year that we did that, uh, ground was extremely uneven. And it was to the point where, you know, going across the field with wagons and carts was, was unsafe. It, it, was, it was not fun. It was bumpy. And it's, then it's also a, a, a nightmare to take a corn planter through and go through a no-till. And, you know, uh, this farmer said, would you be opposed to tillage? And, and the one thing I've learned from some, some pretty wise people, and I, I'm saying all of this to bring this point, one instance of tillage to fix a problem such as unevenness, I, I mean, that can set you up for success way down the road further than dealing with those headaches and to the same point with uh, with, with uh, adjusting your lime. You know, uh, a surface applied lime application, there's a lot of different uh, points of view, but on, on average, I find that about it's going to leach about a half an inch a year. So if, if we're looking at a, a soil profile that's, you know, eight, 8, 10 inches, and it's going to take quite a long time to uh, have that lime work within the soil. So incorporating it into the soil, incorporating phosphorus and potassium into a really depleted system uh, within the soil profile, that's a great way to jump start the system, uh, create a better environment for those plants to get started and then uh, let nature do its take. You know, I heard John Teeter say this one time. Um, I, I want to make sure I word this right. He said something along the lines of, we have degradated, meaning humans, have degradated so many things that it does take amendments to fix them. And, and the tools you're using in this instance just make so much sense to me. And I think it's important for people to understand how those tools and implements are used. And to me, this is, fitting the shoe properly.
0: Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I, I think that's, without going down too much of a rabbit hole that you and I like to go down, I, I do think that's one of the biggest issues is people not understanding um, how amendments interact in the soil profile, specifically in the food plot world. I mean, I'm sure you've probably seen full-scale growers maybe not even understand in some cases, but like the, you know, understandable. Well, what is, you know, excess nitrogen what what happens to it you know and sometimes people think like oh well that's just uh you know they're just you know worried about the environment well well yeah i mean we don't want nitrate just going running everywhere but there's also the fact that it can in certain soils can pull calcium with it and calcium is very important to the structure right so so that's it's not that we just don't want you to buy nitrogen right but well and understand like there's other impacts that happen and likewise like i don't have if you want to go buy phosphorus and put it down i have no skin in that game right but i do want you to realize like throwing phosphorus down on a no-till food plot granular phosphorus you're you're not going to get anything out of that like there's a lot of science that's, that's proven now if you're running it people oh my farmer buddy does it well is he putting it in a two by two on his mm. corn like that you know in those little details i feel like get left off a lot Because people don't, especially a lot of food farmers, but maybe not aren't as familiar with some of that. So they'll say like, oh, well, he told me he puts phosphorus down every year. Well, it's different when you're putting it underneath the, the... corn plant so that the roots are you know what i'm saying oh,
1: absolutely like, you're putting it where the root is going to take it up the best there's a lot of data out there suggesting it that's why there's even a lot of farms that have been no till for a long time that are talking about doing rotational tillage to incorporate you know fertilizer in the system i think there's other ways that they can do that and i don't necessarily agree with the, the with the the action taken to correct the problem however what they're talking about shows significant response and that's that's you know where we're coming from here
0: yeah exactly and that's where there was a gentleman people can look it up he's in illinois i think but he did a a big post it got a lot of attention i'm sure you've seen it where he took the samples and showed where he had put p and k for 15 years and um almost all of it was still within the first two inches of the file over 15 years and he was a big time no tiller and he still is right but he did a rotational till to then go back to no till Um, and by till I mean he he flipped it over and then he no tilled into that you know but with his planter but he um, saw really impressive yields or impressive growth it's looking like he's going to get good yields but the yield data I think is will obviously come this year because I think he's doing this like in real time that's um, correct. It, yeah, it's looking. Yeah, so it's pretty impressive stuff. Um, so with all of that being said, for food plotters, I just think that's something that to, to be considered of. If you have these brand new fields and you're going to to do a lime application or a um, specifically the nutrient applications, right? It's really something to keep to keep in mind that maybe that P and specifically P and K, I should say, Certainly. maybe that P and K. If you're gonna do it, right? You're gonna do this one-time tillage, you're gonna like work it in. And I'll I'll be totally honest with you, Mitch. Like, I'm at a point where my with my established fields, my pH is like in a good enough range. Six two to six four, like I'm happy with it. And on occasion, will I put a little bit of lime down? Yeah, but I haven't felt like I need to put enough down that justifies a tillage on those fields. But if I was starting fresh. Like this, this example we're talking about, it's like, well, the ground's already bare, Okay. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, so why not get it right? Or at least try to get it as bright as
1: you can off the bat. That's kind of my thought. Exactly. I mean, ground's already bare, it already had equipment on it, disturbing soil and stuff. So, you know, why not get it set right? But speaking of things that food plotters don't really understand a great deal, and what I really wanted to talk about with you today, I want to dive in a little bit to carbon load. So we're getting, we're getting, uh, you know, through summer here, we've got Nitro Boost in the ground, which that's uh, the mix that you've talked about before on the show and many other podcasts. And uh, in the two pass system, we're gonna we're gonna terminate uh, Nitro Boost and, and plant Carbon Load. And Carbon Load, you know, you've done some tweaking with it this year, and I wanted I want to talk with you about it. First of all, what is Carbon Load? You know, what are some of the the, the things that are in Carbon Load? And talk about why uh, this is a really, really great system when we're so used to monocultures and food plots. We're so used to having a brassica plot here, a cereal grain plot here, a soybean plot here, yada, yada, yada. And, you know, the thought that we have to maximize each of those specific plants' uh, biomass, um, and it, it... you know, many have said it can't be done with a multi-species because you, the, the carbon load is a, is a very high multi-species. So tell me a little bit about carbon load this year.
0: Yeah, thanks. So carbon load is our fall mix. I've been using it on my farm for, I don't know, six or seven years now, you know, and um, I've tweaked it every year. And um, actually last year had gotten away from uh, a couple of the things I really enjoyed in the mix. And Um, in the past and i don't know why you know you just always kind of are tweaking things and i I really miss the one in particular being chicory um a lot of people will say oh you you know chicory in the in the fall is too slow to establish but what what you'll see is the uh, its ability to grow in the uh, spring is tremendous it's very drought resistant has a really good root structure um, and it's just an overall great plant. I mean, deer eat the snot out of it. So um, we wanted to add that back in there. Um, some of the other things is, you know, we have fall triticale, winter wheat, rye grain, oats. Um, those are our staple cereal grains um, that are in the carbon load. Um, when we make a mix, you know, I, I sit down, I build Excel files, I, and I, I build formulas that show me percentage grains, percentage legumes, percentage brassicas, right? And I break this down and I, I continue to play because I want to make sure that I have a strong understanding of exactly where I'm going to be from a carbon to nitrogen ratio on those plants. Now, there's some variability there, of course, depending on how late in the season you have the plant grow and stuff. But in general, what is the makeup of this particular mix, you know? And what is going to allow me to balance... My grains to brassicas to get a deer hunter who just wants to see huge brassica tops and nice bulb production and big radish production tubers, um, but also still have, you know, a highly attractive plot to, you know, some of the, the small, uh, smaller scale farmers that we are, sell to that are using this as their cover crop that they just want to see a nice lush green field for cover cropping all winter. Right. And there's that balance there. And, what I find very important, Mitch, and I think sets us apart from anybody else that's doing this, is this fall mix. I'm proud to say is 55% cereal grains. And some might say that's it, and I say, yeah, that's it. And there's a reason for that. Um, and the reason is is that not only is it only 55% cereal grains, cereal grains are inexpensive to, to buy, relatively speaking. So what happens is a lot of people sell a mix, and you can sell a mix at 80 or 90 or 95% cereal grains. And then have all these really small numbers added in to make it look really diverse. But, but really you're kind of diluting the overall, overall mix. But I think you also can struggle with, um, in my opinion, having too much carbon in the system going into your spring planting. And you're going to, especially in no till, I think one of the leading causes of people giving up on no till is not understanding the carbon and nitrogen cycle. And how things break down. That's another discussion, but I think that leads to a lot of frustration and a lot of tillers coming back Absolutely. out of the home. And when you, when you, you take these mix like this, like ours, 55% of that 55% oats is the smallest percentage. And I do that in on purpose. Um, again, oats are really inexpensive, but I won't sell anything. I won't plant on my own farm. So I have oats is a small one because it's not going to overwinter in most of the whitetails range. So I'm not going to have people paying for something that's not going to overwinter. So what do I do? Well, I up my winter rye, I up my winter wheat, and I up my fall triticale. Those are all probably the three most expensive uh, cereal grains to put in a mix, but I feel it's important to have those in the mix to make sure that people realize it's going to keep you that green carpet throughout the season. Now, I also have um winter peas um, and then buckwheat. People say, well, "Why do you have buckwheat in there?" Well, buckwheat and oats germinate very quickly, so that's going to give you this little nursing crop feature. Nice. Another nice thing about buckwheat. I don't know much about honeybees, but I know that at the end of the season in the fall, um, I talked to a guy who's really into honeybees. They're like, oh, having a fall plant of buckwheat is really good for them for pollination because they're running out of a lot of pollinating sources. Um, I don't know if that's true or not, but I told me that I'm like, yeah, that's. Cool, let's throw it in there. So we put that buckwheat in there because I knew it would also act as a nice nurse crop. So while your grains are getting established, your oats, which is a grain, but it pops out of the ground real quick, and so does that buckwheat, acting as a nurse crop to let your grains, clovers, etc., starting to get established, take a little bit of the browse pressure off. Um, so we have that in there with your winter peas as well. Um, we throw in hairy vetch, crimson clover. Um, I'll just go through some of our clovers. Uh, frosty bursine and, uh, fixation balanza as well. Um, so again, trying to keep nitrogen, keep the nitrogen in the system, take it out of the air, fixation balanza, just a really great clovey, frosty bursine. The deer just eat the snot out of it. It's just great tonnage producer. I mean, it grows so, it looks like alfalfa on steroids. I mean, it grows such a fibrous top, big leaves, you know, it literally to me, it always looks like, like, out of the corner of my eye, I'm like, is that alfalfa? And then I get closer. I'm like, oh, no, that's just that frozen it just has those huge, long leaves. Um, so I love that as, as clover, um, as a clover in our mix. Fixation balance, a lot of people know it is is a major end fixer, um, which is a really, really, really intense fibrous root system. And then, of course, the crimson and hairy vetch um, are in there as well to create a ton of biomass the next spring. What I'm most excited about this fall, um, even though we have a lot of beautiful pictures from last fall and people loved it, and it's it's not that inexpensive to do, but I wanted to do it because I wanted to um, just make the mix a little bit better, you know? And that is I increased the brassica rate. Um, so in this mix, you're getting your grains, your winter peas, your legumes, and then you get almost a full acre rate of brassicas as well. Um, so it's on the lower end, right? Brassicas typically, they'll say anywhere from two to six pounds per acre. Um, and, and you're going to be at like three pounds, I think, of, of brassicas in this mix. Um, and it's a mixture between, which isn't a, I mean, it's a bump from last year. So, I mean, it's, it's in that balance where you're going to see good brassica production, good grain production, and then all of the legumes and clovers kind of fill in. And that balance is just a critical. And in, 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 I should say broadleafs too, the, the chicory and the, the uh, buckwheat. But that balance is so critical. Um, and even going a step further in the balance is then balancing those those subspecies. Like I talked about with the grains, right? So we dove into why I picked certain grains at higher levels than others. Same with the brassicas. So we have you know purple top turnip and radish. Why? Great tuber production, good above ground biomass, but it's pretty well known. If deer comes by or a cow comes by and top bites the top off of a radish. That's pretty much all she wrote, you know. Um, so we wanted to add really good quality um, or, or increase, I should say, really good quality uh, forage radishes also. Um, those have been bred for, like Winfred forage brassicas one in our mix, right? Those have been bred for a long time to be able to withstand some browse. Um, whereas, you know, your purple tops and stuff, they can handle some, but not quite as much. Uh, so really, really exciting. We also have the, uh Bark mat and the Paja uh brassicas in there as well. Barkmat turn up Paja Brassica. So really, really excited about the overall mix this year. Not huge changes from last year, um, but I think the the plot's gonna feed even more deer. I think it's gonna give a really good jump start to the soil in the fall. And it is one of those mixes, Mitch, that I tell guys who have smaller, you know, they they got a tenth of an acre or a quarter acre And they're not sure about planting the spring nitro boost because, you know, trying to get soybeans and sunflowers in that small field. I go, listen, you could plant this mix and leave it for a year and then come back, terminate and plant it again. I mean, because there's that much diversity in there. It just is amazing to see how much biomass is created above and below ground.
1: It absolutely is. So. One of the things I wanted to highlight there, so you talked about the mix, and you said about 55% cereal grains, and you're spot on that so much of the negative talk about a multi-species that have all those different plants in, because you're talking about having uh, legumes, you're talking about having some assorted broadleaf, some brassicas, and cereals, and one reason why so many people have, have made the comments that you can't do that is because of the ratios. It, it's a it's a carbon and nitrogen ratio and it's just a competition thing. There's there's uh, interspecific competition going on between those plants as they go, but at an appropriate ratio, it's amazing what they can do. So, in order for that uh, second half of what you talked about, the brassicas, the the clovers, the the broadleaves, in order for those to have good success, the cereal grains can't out do and can't out compete those, and I think that's a really important thing to highlight of why you still get so much success from all of these plants is because the ratios in which they're planted at make it make it successful is what it is.
0: Absolutely, and I, I want to be very clear to people too. Like at these these ratios, um, you can shoot me a message. I mean, Mitch, you you and I have been buddies for a while. I mean, you've seen the pictures. It's not like the next spring you go and, oh, there's no rye grain to roll a crimp or, or to spray or to mow. Like, it's still a heavy stand of winter grains. Like, I would not want to have, like, some of the recommendations I've seen out there um, are really high. I mean, like, I, I've seen 200, 300 pounds to the acre of rye, and it's really, really high. Yeah. I mean, it's like, if you follow, I tell people all the time, like talk to some farmers, follow the, the cover crop groups on social media and you'll see these farmers and they're like, yeah, I'm planting, you know, 30 pounds to the acre of winter rye. You know, so this idea of, I mean, listen, you grow rye on our driveways. It's an, it's a great crop. I love it, Mm -hmm. but I don't know. I don't know where that got so out of hand where we're overseeding with rye to the extent in which it's it's being done um I, I just i see some really high numbers and i really would love to know even in some of those cases what percentage of that is even germinated in in some of these cases where guys are going in overseeing 200 pounds like i i don't even know if it could compete with itself at some of those rates it's it's really quite a bit high so there's there's a very big part of that like you said is, is that balance um and with us, of course, you know, we sell the one-two system. So as that balance works with the nitro boost over time, the system just continues to feed off of itself. And it just gets better and more efficient and everything functions. But even if you're just starting, it's still the right thing. Now, the one caveat I will say is everybody's soil is different. Everybody's deer density is different. Everybody's climate slightly different. So if you're planting and i just it was actually talking to my buddy adam from land and legacy um super nice guy but he and i were chatting he said uh we, i go if you're in an acre food plot in the middle of west virginia there's no agriculture around you got more more deer than people and you're the, you're the only shop in town right <laughs> like you might need to bump up your seeding rates slightly on that acre because it's just deer brows versus the next guy And that's where, like, we have recommendations. We recommend 45 pounds to the acre. You know, uh, uh, the reason we recommend 45 pounds to the acre is because we feel we have a good balance of the brassicas to the grains. When you start to see 70, 80, 90, 100 pounds to the acre, you probably want to ask, well, what's the grain ratio? Because it's probably a lot higher grain ratio to anything else in that mix, and that's why you're having to bump up a lot more through your drill and broadcast spreader. At least that's what I've noticed. I don't know if you feel the same. Oh,
1: absolutely. And I think when you asked the question about where did that two to 300 pounds per acre of rye come from, one of the things I think comes to mind is just the fact that – Rye is fairly browse tolerant in high deer densities, and I think it's one of those things that can be a last ditch effort to fill in some green and just get some vegetation and some tonnage in a food plot on high on high uh, high deer densities, and and that's that's great. And I think a lot of people then scratch your head then, and they go back to well. It just doesn't make any sense that I'm planting all these species at one time in the same location. How am I going to have enough forage? Because they're going to again. The thought is that they compete with each other, right? But when you're putting them all in the same location at lower percentages than what you would plant a monoculture crop, many people think you're going to run out of food. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of discussion when it comes to food plot of saying i want to have and i've done this before al i've done this where i'll try to have uh i'll I'll try to match uh match the peak uh palatability or attractiveness for seasons of the year right so you know first thing comes to my mind when you know our october one bow opener is basically where i think it's september 30th this year but um you know, peas, soybeans, clovers, man, they're going to get hit pretty hard early. A lot of the time when they're planted alone, as they start to uh, start to wind down in the amount of forage available, maybe they get frost hit. Then you start to see maybe a transition to another monoculture. And I know this is where a lot of time brassicas are, I mean, I think they're good anytime, but you know, a lot of people talk about them being somewhere in October into November, and then, and then we're going to transition to just cereals. And the thought of Putting that all together in the same location is just so uh, it's so confusing. So many people don't understand it. And to be honest with you, Al, I don't know that you and I can sit here and talk about it and say how we completely understand it because it's such a an interesting system and how those plants work together. But it's amazing how, number one, browse talent they are and how well they work synergistically together to alleviate browse pressure and hold food throughout the season.
0: Absolutely. And I think... I'll probably get it wrong, but I believe it was Dr. Christine Jones and she said something that was so profound and it, it stuck with me for a long time. I was listening to a, a webinar or a YouTube uh, lecture that she had done and talking about the cattle industry and the, the really big movement there for, you know, mob grazing and rotational grazing and really diverse cover crop mixes and a lot of it's stuff that we do for, for whitetails, you know, specifically for, for uh, wintertime annuals, mm-hmm. you know and or cool season annuals i guess i should say but uh somebody asked that question in the crowd i i, I can't remember exactly how it all transpired but the, the main point of this was she she stopped and she said the thing about brassicas and they don't even understand exactly why this happens but if you look up." brascas and the SARE cover crop manual or something like that. One of the first things that you end up reading about them, ah, great tuber production, good browse product, good cover crop. And then it'll say somewhere along the lines is, you know, non-mycorrhizal. They are known for not communicating with the mycorrhizal fungal network. They're they're known for kind of being um off on their own, if you will, right? Now they have good root structures, good tap roots, they're good nutrient miners, you know or nutrient scavengers. You'll see those terms used a lot. But what does that mean, non-mycorrhizal? Well, it means we're not taking advantage of all that fungal dominated symbiotic relationships that we have where some of these other crops are. But what they found, which is just mind blowing is that when they are in a mix, like good ratios in a healthy system is that they then can tap into the mycorrhizal network. And now they're benefiting their neighbor and their neighbor's benefiting them, which general thought, if you're not familiar with mycorrhizal fungal network is think of it just as a communication chain. So one plant is super water dependent and one plant doesn't need a lot of water. And they're literally communicating to let the next one use up water, use up new to certain types of nutrients and the other one. And, and they're sharing their microbes and all of this through a communication channel. Super intense and, and it's very in-depth. And some of the smartest microbiologists in the world have hours of lectures on it. But the point is like, isn't that interesting? Because... When you think about mycorrhizal fungi and microbiology and the communications that happen underneath our our feet when we're in the field, we know that there's a connection there to nutrient solubility and nutrient assimilation and easier conversion of those nutrients to plant proteins. That's proven. I mean, that has been proven. It's less stressful for the plants in functioning system. So isn't it odd, Mitch, that when I've had guys tell me, I've planted brassicas, purple top, let's just say purple top turnips, big buckbuster brass, whatever they planted, right? They planted brassicas. My deer don't eat them. My deer don't eat them. All right, plant my mix card below and let me know what you think. And I'll get a call and they go, the deer ate every damn brassica I planted in that mix. Why?
1: I was just going to say, so all your stuff you're talking about from my myzo- mycorrhizal fungi, we're, we're starting to get down that, that nerd avenue that you and I like to talk about. Put that into English. What does that mean to you as a, as a deer hunter? When somebody's just worried about deer and deer forage and having best forage so and stuff I, like
0: the way I look at it is like, I could grow a probably grow a big purple top turnip in my neighbor's gravel, gravel driveway. If I just dumped a bunch of nitrogen to it, right? I could probably grow a big looking ball. But deer know what they want to eat. They're concentrate selectors. And there's something about it when those plants are growing in synergy with each other in a balanced functioning system where they're helping out each other, that they're more nutrient dense, right? You Whether you want to use bricks readings, whether you want to send plant tissue analysis, whether you just observationally want to watch deer feed, there's something that is happening there that is biological and it's driving the deer to like those plants more than when they're in a monoculture and i can tell you from my own experience ohio i might have shared this on another episode but i'll share it quickly it's a bait state you can bait uh i was tagged out one year my uncle's hunting big beautiful uh, carbon load mix i'm thinking hey i don't hear him shoot i don't hear him shoot you know i'm kind of sitting on the front porch waiting and waiting and um, I knew I'd hear his gun go off. It was shotgun season and, uh, never heard him shoot. I go and get in the truck and pick him up at dark. And I'm like, Oh man, I know the neighbor told me he's a real nice guy, but I know the neighbor told me he's baiting you, they, all those deer were over there. He goes, "Nah, no, I had 18 of them in that field tonight. I just didn't feel like shoot. That was the most deer we had seen all season. It was the second day of shotgun season in Ohio after he'd been shot at for, you know, a day and a half. And that just goes to show me, um, the attractiveness of these diverse mixes. And as the system is functioning, um, I've seen it firsthand from, you know, running exclusion fences, the amount of the deer we're moving has actually gotten to the point, Mitch, where we've had to up our doe harvest because we're like, you know, goodness gracious, these plots went from being attractive to being darn attractive, you know, yeah. we, we shoot more deer and we see it in, in the exclusion fence, you know, it's 18 inch difference sometimes by October 10th. And that's brassicas, that's grains, that's clover, that's everything. So um yeah, and and I kinda went off on a tangent there, but hopefully I, I got people got something no, out.
1: That's that's the kind of tangent I was hoping for because to me it's incredible because my journey for food plots and finding what's attractive and what works and how to maintain the most cuz most of the places I've hunted have been relatively high deer densities. So, you know, e- even uh, even with my my uh, interest and knowledge in in plants and food plots and stuff, I've been skeptical over the fact that can you really Help with the browse pre- the level of browse pressure and stuff like that, and also have the same level of attraction, and it's been quite eye opening to see that transition. Um, you know. Through through other people who have made the transition and, and seeing it um you know on the ground up and running too and it's one of those things that it's a I think it's a hard pill to swallow because change is always hard whenever you want to do anything in life and especially true to food plots I mean you you think you fine tune a food plot system and then you you find another reason to change it we we talk about that a lot too but it's so interesting because you know many people would just just think why would I plant that mix, I've got this type of food plot, this situation that doesn't work for my situation. But in all reality, I think there's probably very few situations where it doesn't work.
0: Yeah, I would agree. I mean, I I think that even if you have a really, really high deer density, I would make the argument that's even more of a reason to use a really diverse mix because what it's going to do for you, like for example, our mix, one of really good customer of ours, we've shared some videos and stuff on our Instagram, uh, Mr. Dwayne, you know, he's like, yeah, this, this, uh, uh, carbon though did exactly what it was supposed to do, you know, and he, he was planting on his, uh, his really nice tractor and everything. And he has really high deer density in, in West Virginia. I mean, it's really high. And, uh, his plots came back in March and he was, you know, texting, he's like, man, I, these deer, it doesn't look like there's that much out of it the, out there, but they're still eating, you know, and, and telling me. And then, um, it just jumped out of the ground, you know, and that's when he texts me. He's like, Oh my goodness. Like this stuff is in, in the clovers and the hairy vetch. And if, now if, if you would have went with just the brassica mix, mix, Mitch, what would have happened then? You would have had to go in in March. You'd have to spend more money on, on clover seed. You would have had a frost seed. Would it have gotten established fast enough that spring to outcompete the weeds? Like there's a lot more that goes into that. Whereas if you plant that in the fall, that's why we go heavier on our, on our clovers in the fall because they do so well and they establish so strongly that even in March, one of the harshest times throughout most of the Midwest and certainly the Northeast is not much different in that case. It's the browse has been picked clean. Farm fields, if you're in ag areas, are, are harvested. You know, there, there's just not a lot. And that carbon load, it's greening up. I mean, the grains are greening up. The, the If there's any brassicas left, they're trying to pop. And then your clovers and veggies and everything are greening up too. So, I mean, it's literally green for, unless it's under snow, you have a green field there, um, which I think is really, really cool. And it just allows it to kind of fill in the gaps.
1: I'm sure you've gotten a question somewhere along these lines, but within the mix, you talked about all the different species in there. And there's two species in particular that when you think of food plot mixes and food plot seeds and their level of attraction, they're on the lower end of the spectrum. And those two that come to my mind when you give me that mix, um, of all the cereal grains it's been argued you know amongst people much that rye is not as attractive to whitetails and that wheat and triticale and oats are more palatable and they prefer those over rye so you've got rye in the mix and another one that i don't really see deer eat much of at all they they will but it's very low is is hairy vetch so uh, you know when somebody makes the say, saying and they look at a seed tag, maybe they look at vitalized seed and say, Well, it has those two mixes? Deer don't eat those. What do I want that in my food plot for? Can you elaborate a little bit on why that's benefiting so much within that mix?
0: Absolutely. Well, the rye, I would say, I, I mean, I've never seen deer not eat rye. Right. I, I just, I, I mean, um, whether it's on my own place or <laughs> there's some places here. <clears throat> Not far where they've used rye as a cover crop and the number of deer I see out in there, it's, it's unbelievable. But, um, I will say that, that rye is very important because it's one of the most winter hardy cereal grains. So you will likely see deer, um, one, it, it will, I'll, it'll be more stable even compared to winter wheat and triticale, right? It's, it's very, very tough in the winter, number one. And then, the root mass of rye is tremendous. Um, and uh, the hairy vetch is an interesting one because I don't really think of it as, it, as one that I'm trying to attract a ton of deer for. Mm-hmm. Um, I think of hairy vetch more on the soil health side, but also having that balance of legumes, right? So hairy vetch is going to set you up for that next year really, really well it's a ton of above ground biomass it's a good um, nitrogen fixer you know and what i like about hairy vetch is it just fills the gaps it just it's combining it climbs it kind of stretches out and it does this without taking up a lot of room it doesn't have these huge leaves that are shading out other things it just kind of fills in the gap so i look at a field or an acre field as a solar panel and this solar panel We're trying to maximize photosynthetic capture and deer attractiveness on that particular solar panel 12 months out of the year. So with this mix, we want rye green, even if it's 10 degrees outside, we're going to have green rye, right? And deer are going to eat it. We're going to have our brassicas, of course, and everything else. And then that vetch comes in because we're trying to catch every ray of sunshine. Think of it that way. Like we're trying to catch every ray of sunshine. So we came in with a no-till drill and we got all these rows perfect, right? We don't want everything growing just perfect like corn where there's there's suns hitting down between, right? Eventually corn will reach out. But for food plotting, we want that to be a green solar panel. And that's where that vetch and even the peas really fit in nicely because they vine in between everything and help to capture all of that sunlight over a shorter period of time. Um, Or over different periods of time, I should say, where the peas are going to be more in your fall and the vetch is going to kind of stretch out into your next spring um, coming out of dormancy.
1: One of the things I'd like to I like to explain to people is like, look, when you plant a mix like this and has species like this, you're not just don't think short term. Don't just think I'm planting this mix. And the only benefit that this has is during the months of hunting season. You, you, the, the mix and the species that are in there, they are having a great benefit for the future from a, from a nitrogen standpoint, from a nutrient cycling standpoint, but also what you do when you have something that goes and stretches for sunlight and, and covers that ground, it's a weed suppression You know, one of the biggest things that we deal with, and I still use herbicides as needed. I'm not anti-herbicide. But man, if you don't have to use them because plants do the work of competing with the plants that you don't want in your food plots, why wouldn't you want something biological over something chemical? So there's there's an investment long-term in a mix like this that's Easily overlooked from food plotters. Because again, I think many of us deer hunters, and I'm guilty of it myself, man, we're narrow-minded. We have a one-track mind. This is what it's going. But there's there's a, a greater good in a, in something like this.
0: Yeah, and rye too, right? I should, I, that, I, my apologies for not even mentioning that, but you're spot up. I mean, the rye, just um, the alliopathy of it is is phenomenal. It, and it does a great job. It's a great suppressant. And again, in balance. Because, you know, there, there's this... Well, that's that's definitely radical, But, you know, the, the herbicide versus the need for tillage versus the need for synthetic fertilizers to cycle things. Right. So that's why that balance is important. We want to suppress weeds. Um, and again, having that mixture of good weed suppressants uh, or suppressors, I should say, um, help. Right. Versus just a monoculture of rye or a monoculture of something else. You have a mix of different plants that are working differently to suppress different weeds. Um, coming out of spring. So I couldn't agree more with you. Thank you for adding that.
1: And uh, carbon load, you you said this earlier in our conversation. I'm going to kind of cap the episode off kind of with this, but um, you were talking about small food plots and you can plant something like carbon load and it does so well that you can let it go uh, throughout the entire growing season and replant it it's going to reseed itself it's going to cover the soil this and that um, but a lot of food plots that we deal with are, are small plots I mean I can think of many small food I have one on a new property that's it's hardly even a third of an acre and uh, you know I'm concerned about deer pressure uh, browse pressure and, and things like that um, do you ever run into situations though where you think you know what you're better off with a, a clover food plot here, or you're better off with the monoculture. Are there ever cases where you feel that way, just given the circumstance? Um, I, I'm, I'm kind of along the lines of, I, I think multi-species can do it at all in a lot of cases. It's just, you have to understand how to set your expectations, given the amount of food you put on. I mean, what are your thoughts on those micro plots? On
0: micro plots? No. Um, if you can get in there with a backpack sprayer and, and do a, um, like our, you know, our mix, um, my, my take would be, you know, you buy a half acre, you put down a third of an acre. If you can get back a month later, you know, put down 10, you know, five pounds, whatever, you know, put down a little bit on top. Just if there's thin spots, spots over deer over browse, but I think you're, you're not going to beat that biomass creation um i think in a clover plot like that what happens a lot of times in those really small plots in my experiences with like a a monoculture of a legume right it clover something like that unless you're doing like a roundup ready alfalfa um is what ends up happening is that now you have this clover field but then like two years down the road you have this clover field that's dominated by weeds and the guy's like well i can't get any equipment in there And he's trying to spray, cleft it to him in a backpack, you know, and it just gets really messy. They can't mow it, you know, and and the deer are maybe mowing it, but not enough to where it's keeping the weeds at bay or they're eating the clover and now the weeds have taken over. So I've seen that. Where I do think, though, um, like a clover or an alfalfa can play in are maybe areas where – not necessarily a small area right but if there's an area where you can't get equipment into or you're not going into there very often it's almost like a sanctuary bedding with like a little food that you're not even going to hunt it right you're just putting something in there that you want the deer to keep in and maybe it's um a, you know a clover mix or something like that you don't really care what it looks like you're not really hunting over You just, like in sometimes in those instances i could see we go in there you know do an herbicide burn down you know throw some stuff down and get you done with it um you know we've done a couple areas where it's just we're drilling in you know 12 to 15 acres of the car or the nitro boost right and we got a couple spots mitch they're just not safe on the tractor it's really really steep terrain it's a big drop off we already have our main area of focus where we're trying to increase soil health and we're trying to feed a ton of deer And our nitro boost and we'll be carbon load so like on that steep drop off we're like well we might as well put something there that's better than what the, the fescue that's there and try to alleviate some browse pressure in the summer months right so my buddy had um some alfalfa that, uh, you know, I think he was spraying the amox on it or something mm-hmm. like that. the one-time treatment, you know, go in there, just spray it with herbicide, seed it with the alfalfa, then can go in there and just backpack spray that half acre with the amox. Um, and only reason we're doing that is, like I said, the terrain is so rugged that we're just, and we're trying to alleviate some of the pressure off of our bigger fields. Um, so that's, a, you know, something that you could maybe consider, but I think for a hunting plot in a micro plot, I've shot a lot of deer over like a 16th of an acre carbon load. I mean, a lot of them. And, uh, you know, you're not going to get huge brassicas, but it, it's amazing how green it'll stay and uh, what you can do in a small area.
1: Yeah, amazing how green it'll stay, still produce tonnage, and still be attractive. And I think that's really important. You know, the the, the thing you were talking about with, you know, areas that aren't necessarily food plots, but trying to – I've heard John Teeter talk about that. And that opened my up. It was a strategy I never heard is actually putting um, – green browse in a bedding area and planting and that was like mind-boggling because I always thought don't put a food plot somewhere where you're not going to be able to kill them but the the concept he was talking about was something like just a, a a a low preference browse like a cereal grain or a, or, or he, he even used annual ryegrass which is mind boggling to me because in a food plot that's like to me was taboo but the 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 concept behind it was look deer when they, when they bed they want a location where they A feel secure and they B have something to browse on because deer are notorious for they'll lay down they'll get up they'll move a little bit they'll browse and they'll get down and having a little bit of extra tonnage having a little bit extra attraction even if it's low attraction relates to that food plot really well and that's a concept that I want to explore more and learn more, but I think that's kind of what you were kind of alluding to there with, with with what you just said in that steep situation.
0: Absolutely, anything that I can do to make deer feel comfortable on my property, I'm all for. I don't. Um, this is probably again another I don't worry as much about um, a specific. The limiting factor of my farm is food. So that period, end of story. So for me, I want the deer to feel really comfortable. And I know there's enough mature bucks around that I just need one of them to make them stay. Like I don't have the time to say, I'm gonna hunt a deer, right? I just need, you know, one buck that's mature to show up. So for me, I want to keep those deer as comfortable as they can to get them to an adult age. And if that means putting a food source where those deer can get up, eat a little bit of clover, go back to bed, and then at night work up to my carbon load food plot or something like that up on top of a ridge where I have a wind advantage, I'm all for it. Mm-hmm. So, versus them bedding somewhere else where they're, hey, I'm going to bed, you know, 200 yards from the neighbor's cornfield and get up, I, you know, which. That happens. I mean, you can't, you know, they're wild animals. That's why we love chasing them. But so for me, I'm always like, I want to do everything I can to make those deer feel as comfortable as possible and get age on them. And, and if you can get age on them, eventually, if you hunt smart with the right wind, one of them is going to slip up and in your favor. Um, and that's just the approach we've taken. You know, there's a lot of ways to skin that cap, but um, that's something that that I
1: like to do it's a deadly approach hey man thanks a lot for for talking uh carbon load through us and and talking some of that food plot strategy out because it's it's here we're we're right around the corner for for planting food plots uh for the fall and uh, i I wanted people to have that in their mind when they're making those decisions so thanks out um before we go where uh where should people be looking to uh to get their their vitalize and get their carbon load
0: yeah, VitalizeC.com. Um, check the distributors. Uh, there's distributors all over. I think we're 25, 27, 23, something, something like that. There's distributors all over the, uh, the country. So check those areas out, guys. Great group of guys that we have. Um, give them a call. We also have online orders, uh, free shipping. We ship to your house. If, you order, if the order's in before one o'clock Eastern, it ships the same day. Um, that's a promise we're doing this year. And uh, one last thing I didn't touch on, we are now offering with every order um, a broad spectrum uh, inoculant. So that's uh, included in the cost, whether you buy from a distributor or from us. Um, It kind of happened late. So if you get your online order and you don't have it, shoot me an email and uh, I'll mail it to you. But but basically that's a rhizobacteria that covers not only the legumes, but also helps with nutrient uptake in your cereals and things of that nature, as well as a a biostimulant or humic-based Um, addition to that as well to help that seed germinate and help some uh, nutrient solubility and get those seedlings off to a good start. So that'll be in about a four to six ounce packet that covers up to an acre and you just put that on there as a seed coat and throw it out there. So really excited to be offering that um, and no charge to the end user for this year.
1: That's awesome. That's awesome, Al. Hey, I'm looking forward to it. And guys, if you are on social media, follow Al, follow Vitalize Seed. They're um, always posting you know updates and things within seed and you can watch that grow along and it, it's really really just exciting it fuels the fire for me leading into fall so al thanks for being on the show uh always a pleasure and uh, man best of luck to you this year
0: thanks buddy same to you man we'll talk soon